0: Marina didn't explain a lot about how she'd gotten to Eureka, only that she had to get back to Oxnard and didn't want to miss her bus. And since Stephen was heading in the direction of the bus stop, the empath accepted a ride from him, assuring Wallace and Simone she wasn't getting a perv vibe from him, just traces of narcissism. I can handle the narcissists, my dudettes, she said with a wink before turning and walking toward his car. But you, my dear, she said to Wallace, you need to keep your distance. The two foster sisters stood waving from the porch as the Mustang disappeared down the driveway before tackling the job of cleaning up the drawing room. It was a mess, and while the newly polished hardwood floor had been spared being splashed by the water spout, nothing else had. Everything from Betty's chintz curtains to the walls and baseboards needed to be wiped down. As they struggled to turn the settee upright, they discussed the plans the three had made to stay in touch via encrypted email while experimenting with what they had all agreed to call their wireless connection. Maybe I can tap into my psychic binder compass and locate a YouTube tutorial on developing clairvoyant communications, Simone joked. Just don't read the comment section, Wallace replied. Those bullies with their permanent hall pass say terrible things about kids like us. Her deadpan stare sent Simone into a fit of giggles, and soon both of them were consumed with laughter. It was the laughter they shared that made the work bearable and left Wallace wanting nothing more than a nap on the settee when it was done. Simone went off in search of what she was pretty sure she wouldn't find on the Internet, after first propping a throw pillow under her foster sister's head. It was a moment of sisterly tenderness that anyone who didn't know the nature of foster-sibling relationships might take for granted, but neither girl was foolish enough to do that. Finding each other under the roof of the house of Phantods was no accident. Of that, both girls were certain, and grateful. They may not know where it would lead them, but they did know they would always have each other's back on the journey. Researchers will tell you that dreams only happen during stages of sleep arrived at hours after falling asleep, but prescient dreamers like Wallace will tell you Those researchers have it all wrong. For her, dreaming comes almost instantly once she nods off, and nothing in life was more familiar to her than the sweet sensation of that drift into dream-filled sleep. But something was wrong. As she began to slip into that warm, comfortable place, she felt herself gripped with a sense of something she'd never experienced. Someone had entered the room as she was drifting off, and it wasn't Simone. She couldn't open her eyes to see who it was. She couldn't turn her head or move her arms or legs either. She tried to cry out for Simone, but even her voice was paralyzed. This was something the House of Fantods hadn't done before, and it was terrifying. Was this just a dream? No, it couldn't be. She could still hear the crows out by the orchard. They'd been in a battle for days with a kestrel that built its nest in their territory. She could smell the scented cleanser she'd used on the walls and the lemon-scented furniture polish. She was awake. She knew she was awake. So why couldn't she move? Why couldn't she open her eyes? She had a maddening itch on her right cheek where a strand of hair was brushing against it. Why couldn't she reach up and flick it away? The presence in the room had a familiar odor she couldn't quite place. The marsh at low tide, mixed with decaying seaweed and the putrid smell of rotting fish. It wanted her to know it by its odor, and to know she was helpless to its presence. What had Marina called it? Energy signature? Did she just fail to mention energy signatures come with an odor? Why had she let Marina leave? She seemed to have so much more of a handle on all of this. Why couldn't she have stayed? Would she have told her to try communicating with it? How? Are you doing this to me? She tried asking it with her mind, forcing herself to direct the thought to this presence. What do you want from me? Why don't you want me to see you? Don't you trust me after all the secrets I've kept about this house? Is it the poetry? You want me to take down my poetry blog? Let me up now or I'll tell the world about you in modern American free verse, you stink monster. No thought, no attempt to move or scream or mentally threaten this entity had any effect on it, and the harder she tried, the more vividly terrifying the experience became all she could do in the end was surrender to it and let herself fall fully asleep maybe then she might escape into a dream and ghost whatever this was For a cup of Ned's coffee I checked my suspension of disbelief for any obvious signs it was in need of repair, and tried my best to look at the big picture, the series of dreams as a whole. What part had they played in getting me to this point, and where was it all leading? There had to be something I'd missed. That many questions meant going back to the beginning. I retraced my steps to that point where I first encountered Wallace in that dream with the cackling demon in the bed. And wouldn't you know it, there was something I completely overlooked. Dark energy. I had seen it as just background noise, so didn't even bother putting it in the dream journal. But why would it be there in the dream at all if it wasn't important? I needed to know more about it. Between that and Champ, It gave me two reasons to find a way into town to use the library computer. The oversized camo jacket Ned wears duck hunting and this floppy hat would make it easier to get past the more obvious surveillance cameras I knew I'd be passing once I emerged from the hiking trail into Burlington. I just had to hope they'd work for the less obvious ones as well. Champ was pretty easy to check out, came right up labeled folklore in Wikipedia. Reports about the mythological lake monster go back to the early 1800s, with over 300 sightings since then. I wonder how many of those sightings were in dreams. What surprised me the most about the Wikipedia entry was the list of legends about other similar lake monsters around the country. Where do these myths come from? Do people just not even bother applying critical thinking anymore? Researching dark energy started out as easy as researching champ. Just like the news anchor reported in that dream, it's the name given to this theoretical element astrophysicists are still trying to wrap their heads around. The more it grows, the more it causes organized systems to fall into chaos like star systems and galaxies, and, eventually, the universe itself. I would have left it at that, and closed out my session on the library computer, but a link that came up in the search caught my eye. It was a subreddit on dark energy and demons titled Ouroboros. It was the kind of thing no self-respecting fiction writer could pass up the entire thread was dedicated to a discussion exploring the idea that all demonic activity may actually be the work of dark energy, the thought being that it uses humans to produce what it lives on, energy that resonates at the lowest frequency. So I guess that's where the Ouroboros comes in, with energy consuming energy, like the snake eating its own tail. Interesting metaphor there, especially since the Oroboros symbolizes infinite evil. I guess I can see how someone could make the leap from astrophysics to demons with that. But it's a stretch. The thread goes on to say the single most abundant source of low-frequency energy that humans produce is that which comes from corruption. Okay, this is definitely a new one for me an entity that thrives on the by-product of corruption, converting it into dark energy, which is what causes organized systems to collapse into chaos, and will eventually do that with the entire universe. I was getting the sense that these experts in the art of expressing opinions on the Internet had taken one selfie too many with the statue of old Champy I'd passed on my way to the library. Maybe it was time to close out the browser before I found myself wading through the murky waters of religious-based esoterica. But this one entry jumps out at me. It doesn't just thrive on corruption. It's refined its ability to induce it in sentient beings using countless civilizations over countless millennia throughout countless galaxies to grow and reproduce and that's what's causing it to expand at such an alarming rate. So it's like ants and aphids. Ants don't have some elaborate motive for pulling the wings off aphids in order to get them to stay on a plant. They just want the plant's nutrients those aphids fill their bellies with. Their biological imperative is to survive. And they've figured out a way to do that. Does that make ants demons? or just really good at surviving. There seemed to be an argument in the thread that instead of waking up to this, we've been distracted into focusing on mythologies and icons like statues of lake monsters, and none of it has helped us learn to recognize dark energy's presence and how to deal with it. It's left us oblivious to the fact that there are two primary forms of corruption that it relies on for the production of its food source—lack of empathy and lack of compassion. Get rid of both, and you've set the stage for an endless supply of low-frequency energy that easily converts to dark energy once consumed by the ancient being formed at the beginning of time out of chaos itself. At least, according to subreddit scholars. I wasn't sure what to think about all of that, but downsizing the seven deadly sins to just the two made a lot of sense to me. Probably because all the others originate from one or the other, or both. I'd been watching lack of empathy and lack of compassion destroy the world around me my entire life, and it was escalating. And I'm not ashamed to admit I have always found living in a world without empathy to be terrifying. There is no decision more difficult than the choice to not live a fear-based life while navigating a world without empathy or compassion. What if what we've been taught to believe has complex motives for luring people to commit sins like lusting after their neighbor's shiny things? Is really just a fairly simple entity with a biological imperative to survive and reproduce. And we're helping it with that by macerating our brains with Sunday school verses about good and evil, instead of learning to manage our own inherent corruptibility by fostering empathy and compassion. This intrigues me. I've seen a thousand different takes on the endless battle of good versus evil but never have I seen evil discussed as just some mindless creature using equally mindless humans to produce an endless food supply. The question it leaves me with is, what does any of it have to do with a dream about a mythological lake monster? So far I'd dreamed about one called Champ, and before that, one called Dagon, a mythological sea monster considered a deity by the Mesopotamians, one which Lovecraft based at least one horror story on. And I'd heard a similar shriek as the she-creature from that dream coming from the bay in the one with the killer robots. What was it that girl Marina said she used to override their operating systems? Her wireless connection. How the hell do mythological water monster deities have anything at all to do with dark energy? And how is it putting the girls in danger? Is the answer in a dream I'm not remembering? Where do the dreams go we can't recall anyway? More importantly, if we're the aphids in this scenario, how are the ants managing to pull our wings off? The library computer logs me off and I sit staring at the blank screen wondering what it would take to override their operating system and log back on. Even if I could do that, I would still need to figure out the password for the Wi-Fi. Marina made it look so easy in that dream. I carry some fresh food back down the walking path toward the cabin. The collar turned up to hide as much of my face as possible. No closer to figuring out how or why those girls are in danger than I was when David Bowie told me I need to help them. Wallace woke feeling anchored to the bottom of a dark ocean, yet gripped with a terrible thirst. Stumbling into the kitchen for a glass of water, she was surprised to see the sun sinking into the bay already. She'd slept through the afternoon and into the evening. And the entire time, she dreamed of being underwater in the kingdom of a ruler named Saint Fear. He had taken control of the realm beneath the water by sowing division between all living things there. Those he declared worthy needed to prove their continued worthiness by taking all source of light away from those he convinced them were unworthy. One lone creature, targeted by this campaign, had hidden her candles, hoping to go unnoticed each night she would take one out and light it while saying a prayer in which she asked for illumination to bring wisdom to her fellow sea creatures in the grips of saint fear's cataclysmic rule as she lit her last candle she mourned what the darkness would do to her and all the creatures of the sea once the light from it was gone and as that last candle flickered She spoke bitterly. Them. They. I don't want to be like them. They do the dark work of Saint Fear. His reign can only end when there are enough to rise above these murky waters and become bringers of the light. Wallace hadn't noticed Stephen coming in through the back door with his laundry. Or that instead of heading right down to the basement, The words she spoke froze him in place. She was standing at the sink watching the last of the sun drift into the bay, talking to herself about the dream. She had the evanescent feeling of still being in it, almost as if the entity that had paralyzed her had intended to anchor her so firmly in that darkness she wouldn't ever surface until Stephen snapped her out of it when he dropped the laundry basket on the floor with a gasp. "'What was that you were just saying?' he said. "'Nothing,' Wallace replied. "'I wasn't saying anything.' "'Because no one likes to admit they were talking to themselves.' But it wasn't nothing, and he knew it. He said he'd heard her and wanted to know what she was saying. Wallace shrugged and reluctantly explained she'd just had a dream about a heartless ruler named Saint Fear and how the light of her last candle burning out meant fighting the darkness he spread would be so much harder. Wait right here, Stephen said. Don't move. He ran back up to the apartment above the carriage house and immediately returned with a single sheet of paper on which he had just written a new poem. He titled it, Saint Fear, and it opened with a single line that was even more paralyzing than what Wallace had experienced in the drawing-room. Gone the light of her last candle. His phrasings were decidedly more poetic. And while he hadn't employed an underwater setting, the imagery in the poem was exactly the same imagery in the dream she was having as Stephen was writing it. It vividly illustrated the growing darkness and despair that comes from the reign of fear. And he wanted to know how she'd done it. You tell me, she said. How did I dream about you and that red Mustang of yours last night, with no idea you even existed, or that I'd be meeting you for the first time within minutes of waking up from that dream? Simone had been standing in the hallway listening to the entire conversation, having just discovered something about Marina's mother on the Internet that the young empath hadn't bothered to mention. It made her wonder if it had been part of the inspiration for the new renter's poem, since he had most likely seen the bus when he gave Marina that ride, the bus Simone herself had dreamed about the night before. The poem's about what's behind the bus she took out of town, isn't it? she said. She liked the analogy of the candle in the poem but wasn't entirely sure how it worked in the underwater world of Wallace's dream. Stephen nodded. Is there something about Greyhound I don't know? Wallace asked, a wave of confusion sweeping over her. Simone explained that Abuela Express is her mother's mobile escort service, and the reason Marina arrived on their doorstep so early was her mother had driven up the night before to service a client at a function being held at the Carter House, Eureka's oldest and most secretive gentleman's club. What, and Marina is caught up in her mom's business somehow? Wallace said. She's barely fifteen. Stephen had assumed that was the reason Marina didn't say anything about it. But it made no sense to Wallace that Marina would keep it to herself, especially considering the dark reality that had led both her and Simone into the foster care system. She wanted to say it was a mistake to assume Marina and her mother were involved in prostitution, but was well aware of the decisions a woman can be faced with when forced by choice or circumstance to live outside the margins. Lighting a candle underwater seemed as good an analogy for that life as any. Besides, haven't escort services pretty much evolved beyond stigmatizing characterizations? There are plenty of legitimate reasons in today's world for a man to need an object on his arm, right? Something uncomplicated, something temporary and disposable for the senior partner's retirement party. All of this was running through her mind when a question came to her. How on earth does a man who's capable of writing a poetic examination of the nature of darkness as it pertains to our culture of disposable objects end up a narcissist? And then this, the question Wallace knew would haunt her. Why had the house of Phantods gone out of its way to connect them by pinning her down and making sure she dreamed that poem while he was writing it. Marina had warned her to keep her distance from him. So had that dream the night before. How exactly was she supposed to do that after something like this?